So if you've got a Bible tonight, I want you to open it, if you haven't already, to Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3, where we are continuing, and actually not only continuing, but we are concluding our series, God in the Valley, which we have walked through at the end of this evening, the entire book of Habakkuk. How many of you, just out of curiosity, have enjoyed the book of Habakkuk? You know, um, a little bit different. He's a little bit different. He's a little bit rogue. He's a little bit raw, but I have enjoyed it, enjoyed it significantly. At the beginning, I thought, as you probably did, this is going to be a great series for someone who needs it. And then at about week two, I was like, oh, I needed this. I needed, um, this. So how many of you just out of curiosity, um, typically, uh, most people fall into two categories. Um, typically you would fall into either a beach person, or a mountain person, all right? So beach people, that's what I am. I fall into a beach person. Um, I love going, I love our city. I love that we get to live in Wilmington. I love that we um, have just water all around us. I love that we get to go to the beach at any moment that we prefer and sit on the sand and see the sunrise and to have the sun hit our face and smell of the salt air and the breeze of the warm air come as well. And are you there? I just love, I just love the beach. I'm a beach person. Um, if I'm, if I'm at the beach and I'm in the water, I swim, surf, whatever, got sand all over me. I go home and as is my normal custom, I don't take a shower the rest of the day because I like to have sand all over my body. I know I'm weird, but I like the sand in between my toes when I'm wearing my flip-flops throughout the rest of the day just because I absolutely love the sand and the beach. My wife, however, hates the sand. She thinks like sand is a result of the fall. Like she doesn't understand why there needs to be sand in our lives. And she doesn't understand why anyone would willingly choose to put sand on their bodies. She prefers the mountains. She likes the mountains because they are cool. There is a lower humidity there. There is um, elevation and there are different things to see. And it is uh, fun and enjoyable. And she did go to Appalachian State University. And so maybe she is a little bit biased, but she is a mountain person. Just out of curiosity, if you fall into the category of a beach person, raise your hand real high. You are a beach person. And then how many of you are a mountain person? Raise your hand real high. I've got a few mountain people in the room as well. You know, there's something interesting about whenever you travel to a, a uh, uh, the mountains, whenever you go to the mountains, um, I personally, even though I'm a beach person, I enjoy the mountains. You know, if you're at the mountains, there are a few things that are true about a, a mountain experience. Uh, mountains are uh, high. They're high. They're elevated high above sea level. Um, they're above the surrounding area. Nice and high. It's also bright. Typically, you're in abundant daylight usually around you the sun you're actually closer to the sun there's usually abundant sunlight whenever you are on the mountain it's also open it's open and it's spacious and there isn't anything that is around you because you can see and you can look and there you are watching and looking at the things that are around you there's also movement there's movement where the wind blows from the mountain tops as the clouds roll through and the leaves and the uh, branches, they move back and forth as the breeze comes by and there's movement. And then there's also, it's a place of vision because you can see long distances. You can look out as far as your eyes will let you see and you can see things in the distance, long distances away and you can actually use your eyes to have vision. You know, but the opposite is true of valleys. You know, a valley, unlike the mountain, which is high, is, is actually deep. 
It's not elevated. It's not above anything. It's actually below everything. It's deep and it's, it's not bright like the mountain, but it's, it's dark. Light doesn't have the same ability to get into a valley as it does to hit the mountain. And it's not open like the mountain, but it's, it's kind of closed and constrained. There isn't as much space. It's a little bit more isolating because you don't have the space that you would have when you're on the top of a mountain. And unlike the mountain that has movement, a valley is actually stale. There isn't much wind and breeze that moves through the valley because it's so low and it actually becomes very stagnant and very stale. And unlike the mountain that has the ability to have, you have vision, the valley doesn't have much vision because you don't actually get to see much other than what is right around you and what is right in your face. What we have been looking at and what we will conclude this evening is a valley experience. Um, Walking through the valley and living in the valley and trying to figure out what to do in the valley. And in Habakkuk, this Old Testament prophet, we get this beautiful picture and um, we get to see this story and we get to actually kind of peer behind the curtain of his heart and look into the the depths of despair that he faces and the fear and the challenges and the, the angst. And Habakkuk lays himself bare as he describes what it's like to be in the valley, especially as a believer trying to find God and know God in the valley. And here we find ourselves at the end of the story in Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And this is Habakkuk's prayer to God. The book of Habakkuk has been a dialogue back and forth between Habakkuk and God in which Habakkuk would offer up a conversation to God and then God would reply and then so on and so forth. And here we see the end of the conversation in chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. It says this, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. I'm still not completely sure how to say that last word. That's the best effort that I have. And... Commentators are actually a little bit confused on what this word exactly means because it isn't a very common word. There's uncertainty about its the term. But many believe that it is some kind of musical term or some kind of musical notation that Habakkuk uses in his writing. And this is perhaps true and most likely true because at the end of chapter 3, we will see that he writes this to the choir master, which commentators tell us that all of chapter 3 that we are going to read and experience today is a prayer to God. But even more than a prayer, it is actually a psalm that Habakkuk writes to God. And a psalm is actually a song. It's an Old Testament song, which would mean uh, this would make it into the Hebrew set list of songs that they would sing on a regular basis in their worship gatherings. And Habakkuk offers this prayer, this song to the Lord. And at first, if you remember at the beginning of the book, Habakkuk doesn't offer a song to the Lord He doesn't offer a song of praise. He actually offers his pain to the Lord. And it's interesting to me that by the end of the story, what was Habakkuk's pain is now turned into Habakkuk's praise. That Habakkuk, though he's in the valley and though he finds himself in an unbelievably painful situation, that God meets him in the valley 
and turns his pain into praise. You could say it this way. God can turn your deepest pain into your greatest praise. God can take the deepest, darkest, hardest moment and circumstance and situation and pain in your life. And when you don't even realize it by the end, God is actually turning that situation and that story and that circumstance into a praise. Has anybody ever experienced that before? He will take your pain and he will um, turn it into uh, praise. Um, This year for me, I don't know about you, but this year for me has been a year of pain um, in various different forms without going into all the various details, but um, many challenges and um, things that I've faced personally, but things that I've also faced pastorally. Um, if you have been around here for some time, you recognize that there are various things that our church has walked through this past year and then put a little icing uh, on the cake and a little cherry on top with Hurricane Florence, you know, just to make it nice and dandy, put a little bow on it. But I've walked through, and my wife, we've walked through losing um, uh, close friends, um, losing close um, church family, staff members. And it's been, in many ways, a very uh, painful year. Um, But I believe what God spoke to me in the beginning of the year, that praise is what will get you through 2018 which means that though in the middle of a year that could be and probably is the most painful year of your life, could be the greatest year of praise in your life as well. And means that whatever you're facing and you're going through and whatever valley that you find yourself in, even if you don't believe it in the moment, that God is writing a song of praise in your life. He's writing a song of praise in your life. And so we see this in verse 1 that Habakkuk offers his prayer, this psalm before the Lord. And then we see this in verse 2. He goes on and he says this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Here's what Habakkuk is saying. God, I've heard the report of you and I've heard the work that you have, have done. And from what I have heard, it puts me, it makes me be in a place where I fear. Some of your translations will say, I stand in awe. Like I'm amazed at what you've done. Like the stories that people are telling, the news that people are sharing. Have you ever been in a situation, you ever been in a place in your life where you heard about what God was doing for somebody else, but he wasn't doing it for you? You ever, ever been in a, a situation where it's like, God, I heard that you did something amazing over here and miraculous over, over here. I've heard the work and, and I'm, I'm amazed by what you are, are doing. Um, Habakkuk is in a situation where he's heard about what God has done in the past He's heard about what God has done in the past. He's heard about the amazing things that God has done for his people. And they're like legends, they're stories, they're things that people are telling um, of what the Lord has done. And Habakkuk is in a place where he's like, I've tasted of that, I've heard of that, and I'm not content with hearing it, I want to see it. Habakkuk is like, God, I've heard the report of you, and I've heard of your work, but now I want to see it. He says this, in the midst of the years, which means in my generation, in my lifetime, God, revive it. What you did in the past, God, do in the present. This is a a bold, audacious prayer that, um, and it's a big ask that Habakkuk is making of the Lord. He's saying, revive it right now in the midst of the years. Make it known. Um, This is what I love about um, Habakkuk. He believes that 
if God can do it in the past, that God can do it in the present. He believes that if God can do it for somebody else, he can do it for him. This would be similar to like Nehemiah crying out to God and asking for God to rebuild the walls of the city. When the city was in ruins and when the walls were lying on the ground and there was nothing there and it was a vast wasteland of a city and Nehemiah has the boldness and the audacity to stand before the Lord and say, rebuild the walls of the city. It's bold and audacious faith. It's like Elijah when he is surrounded by the other false prophets of Baal and he cries out before the Lord in front of the altar and says, bring fire down from heaven. Bring it down. He's asking for God to do something in the moment, in his generation, and to show up and to move and to do something like he has done in the past. And which, by the way, um, I am a pastor, and this is just how God has wired me. I am going to be a pastor that asks for God to show up and to move in our church and to move in our city, and what he's done in the past to do it in the present, and to revive it, to work, to do a revival in and through our church. You know, faith unlocks the power of God. And God is ready to move. God is ready to bring the power. God is ready to rain down fire. And He's ready, but he's looking for a vessel. He's looking for a vessel. He's looking, as the scriptures say, to and fro throughout the whole earth. He's surveying and he's waiting and he's watching. He's looking for a vessel that will be radical enough and audacious enough to call out to him in bold faith and ask for him to move. I'll say it this way. This is one of our values as a church. We have big faith and big prayers because we have a big God. We have a big God. I think Christians sometimes forget how big God is. I think we go throughout our day and we go throughout our week and, and we just forget that there is a God that is out there that is big. A God that with the voice and the breath of his mouse, uh, not mouse, preacher slip, with the breath of his mouth, speaks stars into existence and commands the wind and the waves. And this is our God. He's a big God. And I wonder sometimes if our faith and if our prayers are actually in proper correlation to the size of our God. You know, when's the last time that you just had a God-sized prayer? When's the last time that you had God-sized faith? And Habakkuk is in the valley, struggling in his circumstances, and he still asks God to do amazing things. He still asks God to show up. We've got a big God, and we have big faith, and we have big prayers. So this is what I love, what happens in verse 3. God's like, okay, I'll answer that prayer, and I'm going to show up. This is how he answers in verse 3. God answers the prayer with a theophany. Theologians refer to a, or 
use the word theophany, it describes an appearance of God in the Old Testament specifically, but throughout the scriptures, an appearance of God where God reveals himself to an individual or to individuals to demonstrate the greatness of his power and the greatness of his glory. And sometimes these are visions, sometimes these are dreams, and sometimes these are other things. But this is a theophany in which God reveals himself, and this is what God does in verse 3, in response to Habakkuk's prayer, which I just have to stop and wonder, like, would it have happened if Habakkuk wouldn't have prayed for it? You know, what are the things that aren't happening in our lives, that aren't happening in our city, that aren't happening in our country because we don't pray for it? You know, and Habakkuk prays, and this is how God answers. He gives him the vision of something that would happen, of something that would come. This, this, I'm going to read through the whole thing from, from verse 3 and following. This is the vision. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. This is, geographically speaking, uh, area south of Judah that was reminiscent of God working in the past in which God would deliver his people in the past. And God um, allows Habakkuk to see him coming up from the south of Judah, representing and demonstrating that he's coming like he has come in the past. Selah, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. This is amazing. I imagine like God coming in and he's like on a, he's coming like a F-18, like thundering, like a sonic boom breaking the sound bearer and he's moving, the heavens are shaking and the earth is moving. This is God coming in. The earth was full of his praise, verse four. His brightness was like the light. It was like the sun shining as God comes. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Which, by the way, God isn't just a little, small, uh, soft, cute, comfortable God sitting somewhere up on a cloud enjoying a tea, sipping on sweet tea. God is thunderously ferocious. He is fierce. He is a savage. And he moves throughout the earth and he works throughout the earth and he is our God. We see this in verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. This is justice beginning to be enacted. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. This is metaphorical, poetic, prophetic language. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. This is God working justice. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, God is a God that rides in and on a chariot of winning and conquering his enemies. Habakkuk would offer his first plea to God in chapter 1 saying, the Chaldeans, they come in on their chariots. And here we see that God is coming on in his chariot. Verse 9, you strip the sheath from your bow calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high in amazement and wonder and adoration at God. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Creation is so amazed it just stands still before the Lord. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in, angel, in, in anger. This is battle language. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. 
laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. What's the purpose of this theophany? You're supposed to be like, God is bad. I mean, God is, he is fierce. He is a warrior, as Exodus 15 would say. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In your unfailing love, you will lead uh, the people who you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is God. He is a warrior. He is moving in. I'm even having a hard time finding words to describe for you what God is like in this moment. He isn't a cute little pansy who is just barely holding on while the world is going into chaos. He is a warrior. He is a general. And he is moving and working for his mission and his justice in the world. And I know that some of you are like, I don't like to think of God like that. I just like to think of God like loving. I just like to think of God that he's nice and kind and helpful and gracious and loving. And he is. He's unbelievably loving. He is love himself. He is the epitome and the essence of love. He is. But that isn't all he is. He is also a God of justice and wrath and power and might, and he moves, and he works, and he restores justice to the oppressed and the afflicted. And he is working, whether we see it or we believe it or not, for justice, for his kingdom, and his kingdom is coming. And his kingdom is coming. And Habakkuk is able to see this vision of God and to get a glimpse of a new future to be able to get a glimpse of what God is going to do. This is a theophany of what God is going to do, and God gives Habakkuk a little bit of a preview of what will happen. I have to say this before I go any further and move on from this theophany. I love in verse 13 where God demonstrates to him, the prophet, Habakkuk says, you crush the head of the house of the wicked. Now, that language should be reminiscent, should be, um, uh, you could say, um, not abnormal language for the theologian or for the person that is well entrenched in their scriptures, but should be actually reminiscent of other language that we find throughout the Old Testament. In the early chapters of Genesis, at the very beginning of the story, where God created the world, the universe in which he created uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, in which they should live and operate in beautiful splendor in relationship with God, our Father. Rather, um, Adam and Eve choose to rebel against our God because of a temptation and a test from our enemy, Satan, who was the prince and the power and who still is the prince and the power of the air, who tempted Eve and lured her and enticed her in order to take the apple, the fruit in which God had um, commanded them not to take. 
And in her rebellion and in her believing that God was holding out on her, she stepped away in that moment from the Lord. And what would unfold in those moments with our first parents is a separation from God Himself. A separation from our Father. He would then usher them outside the garden, which His presence resided in, because God cannot be in the presence of sin. And as He ushered them out, He would offer a curse among them as well. He would offer a curse among, or a a curse towards the enemy, Satan. And the curse towards Satan would go something like this. You may bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Theologians refer to that as the Proto-Evangelion, meaning the first gospel. And this is what is true. God, in that moment in the garden, would enact a plan in which he would ultimately conquer his enemy of Satan, sin, hell, and the grave. And though Satan might bruise his heel, though he might cut his Achilles tendon, speaking of Jesus Christ himself, and though it might seem like you have won, and though when Jesus hangs on the cross and he takes his last breath, it may seem like you have actually won the day, and you may bruise his heel, but I assure you that he will crush your head. He will crush your head. And though he might be thrown into a grave, and though he might be put under the ground, and though when the world thinks that you have won, the gravestone will not remain intact. The gravestone will be rolled away. And Jesus will walk out in victory, defeating and conquering you, Satan, the enemy, and hell, and sin, and death. And here we see in this beautiful theophany that Jesus reminds the enemy that our Father reminds the enemy that he will crush the head of the house of the wicked. This is God in fierce power and strength. And then we see this in verse 16. The theophany is over, the vision is over, and now Habakkuk continues his prayer and his song before the Lord and says this in verse 16. I hear... His ears are open. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. A rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Here's what that means. Habakkuk is still struggling. I mean, the language that he uses is lips are quivering. His body is shaking and trembling. It's like rottenness enters his bones. This is metaphorical language to be like, it feels like I'm in such pain and agony that it it feels like the body, my body, the bones inside of me are actually decaying. That's how I feel right now. And my legs are trembling beneath me. I don't even feel like I have the strength to be able to stand on my own two feet. And he says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us, which is basically saying, I'm waiting on you, God. I'm waiting on you, God. I'm waiting on you to move. I'm waiting for you to do what you have said to do. And his life is, his road, his journey, his path, it's paved in tribulation still. We were at a conference this past weekend with our staff. 
that we had planned to go to a few months ago in Philadelphia and tried to get out of it, honestly, um, but we couldn't because we had prepaid for um, tickets and hotel rooms, and so we ended up going, and in God's providence, I'm glad that we did go. One of the speakers, a woman by the name of Jackie Hill Perry, she said this, Never have I ever been called to a road of life and it not be paved with tribulation. Did you know that most of life's roads are paved with tribulation? Most of life's roads. And here's, here's the reality uh, tonight. Um, I said this at the beginning of the series, but these sermons aren't sitcom sermons. You know, sitcoms, they last about 30 minutes, a couple commercial breaks, and regardless of whatever happens in the beginning, it all gets restored in the end and everybody leaves and we smile and we laugh. And we like sitcoms, don't you? I mean, I don't like to watch shows that end up with like death and despair and destruction. I like to end, I like to watch shows that end with happiness and everything gets made right and everybody leaves happy and dandy and it's nice and fine. But here's Habakkuk's reality. His life is in a sitcom. And the book isn't a sitcom either. We're at the very end. It's supposed to be all made right. Everything is supposed to be changed. He's supposed to ride off into the distance, like happily, wonderfully married and content and beautiful, and everything is supposed to be changed. But here's the reality. None of his circumstances have changed. Nothing's changed. He's still walking a road of tribulation, and his circumstances have changed. And he says this in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of, olive, of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He's like, there's no roses, there's no sun, sunshine, there's no flowers, there's no fruit, there's no harvest. This is still the situation of my life. This is still my circumstances. The trees aren't blossoming. The vines are barren. The field is empty. My circumstances haven't changed. And I know some of the, some of you have been here and you're here tonight. Maybe you've been here previously and you're like, great series, Ethan, uh, but I'm still in debt. A great series, Ethan, but, um, just so you know, the diagnosis hasn't changed. A great series, Ethan, but, um, the marriage hasn't improved at all. Great series, but my job still hasn't changed. I want you to know that that's Habakkuk's reality as well. None of his circumstances have changed. His situation hasn't changed. Injustice remains. Evil seems to be winning. He's still in the valley. But then he picks up his pen and with what little strength that he has remaining in his hand, he begins to write, and he says this in verse 18. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes your life needs a yet. Sometimes you need to figure out how to find a yet somewhere. Yet, yet means Though this is true, and though this, this is my situation, and though these are my circumstances, in light of that, yet. In spite of that, yet. Yet I will rejoice the Lord. 
I will rejoice in the Lord. I will, he says, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. And I imagine if there were parentheses there, he said it took me long enough to find that out. And I had to look and search and I had to go down a long road to figure that out. But I finally figured it out that the Lord is my strength. Because nothing else has the ability to sustain me. Nothing else has the ability to give me strength. He's the one who makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Wait, Habakkuk, I just thought you said that your circumstances were were this. I thought you said that there was nothing blooming. There was no fruit on the vine, that everything was barren. But he says, he makes my feet run like the deer. See, he makes me tread on my high places, which means it may look like there isn't fruit. It may look like there isn't joy. It may look like there isn't anything good that's happening in my life. But in spite of the situation, God is making me run. God is making me run. He's making me tread on high places. He's giving me the ability to do the things that I don't have the ability to do on my own. And though my circumstances may look like this, he is winning in my life and he is helping me. And I am running even in the midst of my pain. I'm running. And here's what I love about Habakkuk. Habakkuk's circumstances haven't begun to change but he has begun to change. I think too many times we pray for our circumstances to change without praying for us to change. When's the last time that you asked God to change you? God, we're in in debt, and God, this diagnosis, and God, this situation, which you should pray for. You should ask for God, what, what's my job this past week? What in the world, God? What, what am I gonna, what am I gonna do? What about this relationship that is, how in the world am I gonna, who's gonna pay the bills, God? Where in the world, how are we gonna turn the lights on next month, God? Who's gonna pay the rent? What's going on, God? You should pray for those things. When's the last time you prayed, God, change me. God, I don't know why this tribulation had to come into my life, but obviously you let it come into my life to take me from the place that I was to take me to the place that you want me to be. God, change me. And I find too often in my own life that I'm asking for God to change the circumstances. God, would you, God, I really need you to do this in our church. And God, if you would do this, and Lord, what in the world with a hurricane? God, God, could you kind of wonder through this journey. Maybe God is trying to change me. Maybe maybe God is allowing me to experience this to change something in me. And Habakkuk circumstances haven't changed, but he's begun to change. Now, you could even say, I believe that you could say this pretty honestly and accurately, that Habakkuk has a spiritual awakening at some point in the valley. He has an awakening. He initially feels like God is a million miles away. Feels like God is distant. Doesn't feel like God cares about him. But in this moment, he's saying, I'm going to take joy in the God of my salvation. Something has changed in Habakkuk. The script has been flipped. Something has, has happened. His perspective has, has changed about the valley. He's still in the valley, but now he abil- has the ability to see God's plan. He has the ability to understand God's purposes. And there are um, things that he previously didn't experience or understand, but now he understands them. And I think sometimes God allows us to go through the depths of the valley to experience the depths of God. 
And God allows us, because it's only in the depths of the valley that we actually get to mine into the depths of God and who he is. And it's only in valley experiences that we get to understand all that God is and that what he wants to do in and through us. And he says, yet, yet, yet I will take joy. In light of all this, in light of everything that's going on, I take joy. I stand in joy. I rest in joy. I believe in joy. I walk in joy. And I'm going to live a life characterized by joy. I'll say it this way. When you have God, you have everything you need for everlasting joy. Right now. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not when you get the promotion. Not when you get the next house. Not when you finally get married. Not when the, right now you have everything that you need for everlasting joy in God. And here's what I love about, here's what I love about joy. Joy is distinctively and exclusively Christian. Joy is, and this is a bold statement, joy is exclusively a biblical thing. Joy is exclusively a Christian thing. What I mean by that is that joy is something that you only have the ability to know and to understand and to experience in God himself. Joy is like a new reality that you never knew existed until you met God and you found God and you experienced something in your life unlike anything that you had ever experienced before. And here's what's beautiful about joy. Joy is never dependent on your circumstances. Joy supersedes your circumstances. Your circumstances don't have the ability to touch joy. And joy is something that you find in Christ, that's rooted in Christ, that allows you to be able to walk in it and to walk in joy in the worst of life's situations and circumstances. It's joy. And Habakkuk, though his situation doesn't change, though his circumstances haven't changed, he changes and he finds something new about God and he walks in a new joy in God. He started in frenzy, but now he stands in faith. He chooses joy. He chooses to rejoice. He chooses to praise and he's going to give God his praise. He's going to write a song. He's going to write it down. And thousands of years later, we are reading his story because God took his pain and produced praise. Here's the last thing I'll say. Just because you started there doesn't mean you have to stay there. Just because you started there doesn't mean you have to stay there. And can I just acknowledge some people in the room that feel like you're stuck? Ethan, that sounds great, but I'm stuck. Joy sounds awesome, but I'm stuck. Praise sounds awesome, but I'm stuck. You know, Habakkuk, he has the ability to find joy from an experience with the Lord, an experience with God, which would make me want to ask you the question, what are the things in your life that are preventing you from experiencing the Lord? What are the habits in your life that are preventing you from experiencing the fullness of the Lord and His Spirit in your life? What are the practices that you need to stop? What are the relationships that you need to distance yourself from? What is the pleasure? What is the secret sin? 
What is your functional Savior that you've been leaning on and relying on to give you what only the Lord can give you? In the valley, God has a way of stripping things away from us. In the valley, God has a way of opening our hand and letting go of the things that we've been holding on to so tightly so that He can now fill that space. And perhaps tonight is a new realization for you that more than God changing your circumstances, God is ready to change you. He's ready to change you. The way that you do that is you repent. You repent of sin. You repent of shame. You repent of guilt. You repent, repent of habits. You repent of practices. You repent of lust. You repent of pride. You repent of greed. You repent of gossip. You repent of jealousy. Um, you repent of those things. You come back to the Father and ask the Lord to provide you what only He can provide you. And perhaps God wants to change you tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your heart that wants to love us and to change us. And God, we are people that don't like to change. We are people that don't want to be confronted with our own situation, our own idols, our own issues, our own pain, our own past. We would rather bypass the process and fix our minds on other things. But God, I ask tonight that you would uh, change um, us. God, would, would you help us to see and to experience the places in our hearts where um, you're working and you're, you're digging and you're, you're wanting to open our hands and pry open our hands so that we could repent and come back to you and so, God, in the valley, I pray more than anything that you would help us to know you and to find you and to have joy in you in the middle of our valleys. And I ask that you would grant us that, Lord, and give us that ability to, to do that. So, Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.